before I begin the message that uh, I believe God has led me to give this morning, I want to just uh, tell a little story. You'll understand why, I think, as I tell it. A few years ago, I had a detached retina in my left eye. And uh, after surgery, it was necessary for me to be in a rather darkened room, and I couldn't read for two weeks. I had the opportunity of listening to many cassettes at that time, and I have to confess that uh, one of the cassettes, or some of the cassettes I listened to over and over again, were the big band sounds. I love especially Glenn Miller. So I listened to him a great deal. But as I was, uh, this was just before Mother's Day, six weeks or so, and God laid on my heart to, uh, to bring uh, a message on Mother's Day unlike any that I'd ever brought before. I didn't know what that was to be, but I began to appreciate the significance of that day. I should mention that uh, the strongest influences in my life have been, uh, first, my mother. My mother and father were divorced when I was 10, and uh, she always disciplined us. Father never did. And mother supported us. She's uh, at 87, still a tiger. And uh, I had a very strong sister who was just two years younger. And I married a red-headed wife, and that says a great deal, I think. I was turned on to preachers by a woman preacher in uh, California. I had grown up thinking that preachers were men who failed at everything else, and so they just decided to be preachers as a last resort. And uh, that sounds a little facetious, but I really felt that way about preachers until I heard this really great woman preacher in Los Angeles and some of you will remember Amy Semple McPherson. She really turned me on to preaching. Uh, I didn't come to Christ under her ministry, but uh, she had a great influence. And then for the years from my birth in Christ until, actually until she went home to heaven, Henrietta Mears, the director of Christian education at uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, was a tremendous influence. Well, it seemed to me that all of those uh, thoughts came together as I anticipated Mother's Day this particular year. In the process, I remembered that I had a book on women of the Old Testament in my library, which I hadn't looked at for years. So when I was able to uh, read again, I searched for that book and found it, discovered that it was, had been written in 1900. Now, the date is important, 1900. That's a long time before the feminist movement. The first uh, biography, of course, in the book was Eve. I'll be talking a little bit about her this morning. But the, uh, the author of this book, whose name I do not recall, wrote a very strong biography of our first mother, Eve. And he reminded us in the biography that the word Eve means mother of all living. But as he uh, did some more exegesis on that word, he discovered that the word in its root meaning, Eve, also means leader. Well, of course, you can understand now that that became kind of the focus of my thinking as I prepared my Mother's Day message. And uh, I'd like to say this morning that uh, I've learned after 40 years of marriage to a very strong and wonderful woman 
and having this influence in my life that uh, I have learned from experience that the leadership that women give, whether it's in the family or the neighborhood or the community, the city or the nation or the world, that that leadership is fundamental to the strength of a people. It is my conviction that women are stronger than men. The only way they're less strong is muscularly. Men are bigger and uh, tougher in some respects. But uh, in the emotional crises, my experience is that women are much stronger than men. Dr. Lewis H. Evans, the senior, the pastor of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church, when I went there, used to say, men are just boys grown tall, and their toys cost a lot more. It's a great privilege to uh, address women, and I feel an honor. May I ask you to bow with me in prayer, please? Now, Father, help us to realize that uh, there's a chemistry about this particular moment in this particular place that will never happen again. This is an unrepeatable, unique moment, not only in our personal histories, but in all history, all human history. That each of us has something to receive here this morning and something to give here this morning that we'll never have an, another opportunity to receive or give. So may we appreciate this precious opportunity and be open to thee to be ready to receive and to give whatever thy sovereign preference designs for us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me read a very familiar passage of Scripture, a portion of the sixth chapter of John. Now the setting, I'm going to begin right in the middle of the narrative. But the setting is that familiar occasion where Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few scraps of food. Now I'll begin reading at the 22nd verse. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side, Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee. The people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Just before this, you have the record of his walking on the water to his disciples. However, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Uh, just a parenthesis here. Uh, when I sent in the topics for my messages, I had inverted these two, the work of God and the work of Christ. And uh, I had said I, that, that would be the message for this morning, the work of Christ. I want to uh, take the prerogative of telling you that this is the work of God. This evening I'll be speaking on the work of Christ. They said to him, What must we do 
to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus Christ. As I've suggested, the setting for this uh, particular incident in the life of our Lord was the feeding of the 5,000 on the other side of the sea from where they found him. You'll recall the dilemma. There was a great crowd. One of the disciples said, How can we feed these people? And he mentioned a large sum of money and said, This is not sufficient to feed these people. Jesus, knowing what he would do, told them to find a way to feed. One of the disciples brought a little lad who had a few loaves and fishes. But they brought those few loaves and fishes to Jesus. And the record said he asked the people to sit down in groups, and he prayed over those scraps of food, and he fed more than 5,000 people, and according to the record, there were 12 basketfuls left over. Now that's the sacred record. And the temptation, of course, is to just develop this little theme, no matter how little you have, when you give it to Jesus Christ, he can multiply it to meet any need, anywhere, anytime, in any situation. But you have to give it to Jesus. There's no limit what Jesus Christ can do with a person when he has all there is of that person. Jesus Christ and anyone makes a majority. But that's not the theme for this morning. Jesus had, uh, the disciples of Jesus got in a boat and left, and they were in the middle of the sea, and the, the waves were heavy, and Jesus came walking to them on the water, and you know that story. And then they went on to the other side. Now the people missed him in the morning. And uh, they wanted to find him. And somehow instinctively they knew that they'd find him on the other side of the sea. And so they got in boats and sought him out. Now the record says when they found him, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Well, that's a simple question and perhaps a normal one. But Jesus' response is very interesting. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, now listen to the words, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Throughout the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, there have been those who have had a purely commercial interest in Jesus Christ. They seek him only for what they can get out of him. They do not seek him to serve him. They do not seek him to love him. They do not seek him to be his instrument in whatever way he chooses to use them. 
unfortunately, there are those whose only interest in Jesus Christ is a commercial interest, what he can do for them. And of course, lives like that, from the standpoint of the relationship with Christ, are always barren lives, kind of tragic lives. But will you notice also that he said to them, you seek me not because you saw the signs, which is significant because after Jesus tells them what the work of God is, the, the next thing they say is this, what, uh, <clears throat> then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Isn't it interesting? He had just fed them, 5,000 of them, with a few scraps of food. It had been that that had drawn them across the water. But still they weren't satisfied. When we seek signs in order to satisfy us enough to believe in Jesus Christ, the problem is we believe the signs, we don't believe Jesus. This is a very common way of thinking throughout the nation today, perhaps the world. I can't trust Jesus Christ on the basis of his own integrity. I can't believe his word. I've got to have signs. I've got to see results. Well, if we demand that, then we're not believing Jesus Christ at all. We're believing the signs. We're believing the results. How would you like to be in the position that every time you desire to be trusted, somebody would say, well, you've got to prove it to me before I trust you, before I believe you? But that is precisely the situation in which we put Jesus again and again and again and again. This is most uh, recognizable when we have troubles or reverses or difficulties or even tragedies. And the first question is, why did this happen to me? Or we need money and it doesn't come. Or someone is ill and we pray and they don't get well. And on and on and on and on. It is almost like we have an, an, an insatiable appetite for signs and results. And until we see the signs and the results, we somehow can't just trust Jesus on the basis of his own integrity, his own faithfulness, his own credibility. Well... They ask the question, all right, what are the works of God that we may do them? And the answer is so plain, so explicit, so unambiguous. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent, that you believe in me, in other words. Now, may I suggest that the profoundest issue in human history is right at this point, believing Jesus. Let me illustrate. I'm going to turn back to the third chapter of Genesis. Interestingly, in the first four words of the Bible, we're introduced to God. In the beginning, God. And then the next two chapters deal with God's 
how God originated the universe and all that is in it and on it and the human race. And then in the third chapter, in three words, we're introduced to another person. Now the serpent. Now the serpent. In those seven words, we are introduced to the cosmic conflict from which all other conflicts are derived in human history. The conflict between the serpent and God. Between Satan and Christ. There hasn't been a war fought, whether it was Vietnam or Korea or World War II or any other war that's ever been fought that was not derived from this conflict which transcends all other conflicts. Husbands and wives have conflict because of the conflict between Satan and God. Now here we see the issue the profoundest issue in history, the issue of belief raised for the first time. Listen to how it worked. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. That's a significant statement about Satan. He is subtle. He is more subtle than any other creature of God. He's never obvious in what he does. There was a great editorial in the old Life magazine years ago, Center Spread, about Satan. And that editorial said, Satan's masterpiece is his incognito. He argues to prove his non-existence, because who's afraid of what they don't believe in? He is subtle. Now he approaches the woman. And the first thing that happens is a challenge to truth. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now this was the only time the devil was original. He's never been original since. In any number of ways, he is constantly challenging absolute truth. Did God say? Can you really believe the Bible? And he never ceases to run out of efforts to discredit the Word of God and to destroy the Word of God. That's the way he operates. And you can be sure that again and again and again in your experience, however he does it with his masterful incognito, he's going to put in your mind a question about the Bible, a question about the Word of God. Is that really the Word of God? Can that really be believed? Can that really be trusted? This is what he did. He challenged truth. Well, the woman answered. She'd heard clearly what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She had heard God clearly. And she was able to repeat verbatim, Matter of fact, she added a little bit, apparently. She was able to repeat verbatim what God said. She had heard, and she had understood. Now next we see truth contradicted. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. Now there the issue is drawn. 
God had spoken, and Satan had contradicted him. Now, who's she going to believe? But he didn't leave it there. Not just the contradiction. See how he corrupted truth. He said, You shall not die, for God knows. Oh, how subtle. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. How subtle. God knows. What was he suggesting? Look. Look, woman. God has refused to give you something that I'm going to give you. God has withheld from you that which I'm going to offer you. How subtle. As though God didn't want them to be like God. Why, he'd created them in his image. And do you notice the nature of the profoundest temptation? He didn't say to Eve, look, don't pay any attention to what God says. Listen to me and go to hell. She wouldn't have paid any attention to that. The severest temptations are always to godliness, to human betterment, to perfection, to goodness. Very few of you, if any, in this room would be tempted to evil as we think of evil in the, as a category. But you're tempted to good again and again and again and again. Now notice how truth was corrupted. He said, you will not die as God said you would, though that's added, of course, by me. As a matter of fact, contrary to what God said, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Suddenly, evil becomes a positive good. That which God pronounced evil Satan said, it's really good and it's really desirable because it will make you like God. Right there you see the birth of secular humanism. Satan giving human nature a way to perfect itself by its own efforts. There's the birth of that which plagues our nation and the world, for that matter, today, as nothing else does. Secular humanism. If we can just get the right man in the White House and the right people in the Senate and the House of Representatives and the right governor and the right state legislatures and the right mayors and the right city councils, we're going to produce the perfect social order. That's what Marx said and Lenin and Stalin. That's what Democrats say. That's what Republicans say. And that's what independents say, and liberals, and conservatives, and radicals. This fundamental lie of the devil, if you don't pay attention to God, I'll give you a way to produce the perfect social order. Now the incredible thing, you see, is that our first parents, our first mother, was already like God. He had created her a perfect human being in his image. At the very moment she was tempted by the serpent, 
She was perfectly godlike and perfectly human. All Eve and Adam had to do to retain the image of God, all they had to do to be godlike was nothing. Well, to be more precise, to ignore the lie and to believe the truth of God. Or to put it more precisely, all Eve had to do in that situation which was decisive in the destiny of the human race was to believe God. All she had to do was believe. But incredibly, even in her perfection, she believed the lie instead of the truth. She accepted the darkness instead of light. This suggests something, by the way, about the human will, that the more godlike we are, the freer our wills are. The more ungodlike we are, the more our wills are bound. God frees the will, Satan binds the will. God liberates, Satan enslaves. You take any temptation you can think of. I remember when I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to smoke. That would mean I was a man. And I began out behind the barn with the uh, uh, coffee grounds, stuff like that. But finally, my first, first year in college, my freshman year in college, oh my, I could hardly wait to buy that first pack of cigarettes. Now, you know, I was free to smoke or not to smoke at that time. But by the time I was 20, I was smoking two packs a day, and I was not free not to smoke. Now, that's just a little illustration of how righteousness liberates, sin binds. God will never bind your will. In his sovereign love and grace, he frees us even to choose against him. I heard somebody say the other day about a person responding to somebody who hated him, he said to that person, I love you enough to let you hate me. That's love. That's God's love, too. But do you see here the nature of belief, the fundamental nature of belief? Fundamentally, belief is choice. It's volitional. God had spoken. Satan spoke. Now, Eve couldn't believe both because it was a contradiction. She had to believe one or the other, so she chose to believe Satan instead of God. Now, dear friends, you and I make that choice many times a day in our lives. It's a very practical choice. And uh, let me give you an illustration of it. Uh, the alarm clock goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning bed never felt better. Now I've got a conflict. Emotionally, I want to stay in bed. 
but I have to go to work. So my will, instead of my emotions, take charge and I get out of bed. I choose between emotions or feelings or comfort and what I have to do. <clears throat> There's a wonderful story that just comes to my mind now of this man who was walking through a cemetery in the dark of night and there was a hole dug for a grave service the next morning and he fell into the hole. And he did everything he could to get out. He struggled and grabbed and jumped and dug at the wall of the, but finally in exhaustion he, he dropped back in a corner of the grave and fell asleep. Shortly thereafter, another man walking through the cemetery fell into the same grave. And in his struggle to get out, he wakened the man in the corner in the dark, and the man in the corner in the dark said to the man struggling to get out, you can't get out of here, but he did. Belief is fundamentally choice, often against my feelings, often against my emotions, often against the circumstances. How many times as a pastor have I been in a home where there's been a tragedy? Now, I don't just dish out God's word like a prescription to be taken, but I've learned to be very, very careful, in, even in quoting scripture. But sometime or other, I want the one who is suffering the tragedy to remember Romans 8.28. God works in everything for good to them that love him. God works in almost everything, no. Just about everything, no. How much does God work in for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? How much? How much? Everything. Some of you are going through a difficulty right now. God works in everything for good to them that love him. God works in almost everything, no. Just about everything, no. How much does God work in for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? How much? How much? Everything. Some of you are going through a difficulty right now. And it's easier to believe the difficulty than God. It's easier to believe the problem than God. It's easier to believe the financial situation, the circumstances, than it is to believe God. It's a hard choice, you see. It's a very hard choice. But that's what belief really is, fundamentally. And so when life tumbles in, and the circumstances are dead against believing what God's Word says, I have to choose. Though I t believe God's Word against the circumstances, Believe God's word against the emotions. Believe God's word against my feelings. 
I'm so grateful that I was watching the Johnny Carson show some years ago when he had Catherine Coleman on the show. Now, she's in heaven now, but I, you, you will, I think most of you will remember that she had a reputation for being the outstanding, quote, healer in America at one time. She was in the First Church Pittsburgh, I think, weekly, wasn't she, Woody? Filled that great sanctuary for, with people who came for healing. Then she'd take, out, take the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, seating 7,000 people once a week. The place would be packed out with people coming for healing. This particular evening on the Johnny Carson Show, Johnny asked her a question. By the way, he was very courteous. I, I just really was grateful for how he honored her and was courteous and kind to her. And he said to her, Catherine, does everybody you pray for get healed? She said, no. Many are not. Well, he said, how do you explain that? She said, Johnny, I believe in the sovereignty of God in healing. God heals whom he will. I don't know why he doesn't heal everybody. I just know that he doesn't. And then she leaned over, put her hand on Johnny's arm, and looked him right in the eye. And she said, Johnny, the cruelest thing you can say to someone is, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. That's cruel. I know I've been through it as a pastor for 40 years many, many times. I remember one of my first experiences in a little church in Central California during World War II. We were having a women's meeting. And one woman was absolutely radiant as she told how her, her son had gone through this awful battle in the Pacific and many of those around him were killed but she said we prayed for my son and he wasn't and then another woman in the same meeting said my son was in that battle and he was killed we prayed for him now can you imagine how cruel it would be if somebody suggested to that mother that the reason her son was killed because she didn't have the faith that the other mother had whose son wasn't? Can you see the cruelty of that kind of an idea? I'll never cease to thank God that he caused me to listen to Johnny Carson's show that night when Catherine Coleman was on it. It is Christ who heals, not faith. Oh, the despair of those who go on an awful guilt trip because their loved one would have lived if they had only had faith enough or would have been healed if they'd only had faith enough. That's not faith in God. Here's faith. Job said, Though he slay me, I will believe him. So many say they have faith and all they want to see is signs 
or results, and then they'll believe. So they don't believe him at all. They believe the signs and results. There's another thing to observe about the nature of faith. Faith issues in obedience. Now, if our first mother had believed God, she would not have eaten the fruit. She believed the devil, so she ate the fruit. You can't separate belief from obedience. You know that song that's so familiar to many of us? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You can't separate faith and obedience. They are virtually synonymous. You do what you believe, and you are what you believe. Now we come to the point. Oh, by the way, let me point out that uh, it is recorded in Genesis 15, verse 6, concerning Abraham, who lived 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ. Way back in the Old Testament, three chapters, just 12 chapters after this incident we read about this morning, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. Do you believe God? I can tell you on the authority of God's word, you're righteous. You say, now wait a minute, I don't feel righteous. I don't always behave righteously. I didn't ask you that or say that. I said, if you believe God, he reckoned you as righteous. If you believe Christ, you are garmented in his perfection in the sight of God. That's what the word of God teaches. But the devil doesn't want you to believe that. He, he doesn't want you to believe that you're righteous through faith in Christ. He keeps telling you, look, if you'll just read the Bible more or memorize more verses or do more work in the church or whatever, 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 if you'll just work at it, you'll get more and more righteous. And so most of us are frustrated when we get that kind of an idea. I'm going to be talking, God willing, this evening on the work of Christ. And he said, Jesus said, He that believes in me, the work that I do, he will do also. Well, now, wait a minute. I believe in Christ, but I don't do the work he does. All right, you don't believe in Christ then. What's the problem? You keep looking for the work like Christ that's the effect or the result or the sign. No, you believe his word. Leave the results to him. You choose to believe his word. That's the work of God. The work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. Now, this distinction is important. Faith or belief in the biblical sense is not just faith or belief in a vacuum. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus whom he has sent. Belief has an object. Faith has an object. And it is the object of faith that makes it valid. For example, you believed when you sat down in that pew this morning it would support your weight. Pews are made to support human weight. You've sat in that pew before and it supported your weight. Now suppose 
that someone in the night hours had done something to that pew so it would collapse when you sat down. Your faith that it would support you wouldn't keep you suspended in midair. You'd collapse with the pew. It isn't your faith in the pew that supports you. It's the pew that supports you. To believe in something that is not trustworthy isn't going to help you. Faith in faith is a cipher with the edges rubbed off. Faith in faith is nothing. Believing beliefs is nothing. And you know, this is one of the problems with, with theology. People believe theology, but they don't believe Jesus. They believe what they know about Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. Can you imagine how little theology even the, the twelve disciples had after three years with Jesus? There's probably nobody in this room this morning that doesn't know more theology than Peter or James or John or any of the twelve. We've got two thousand years of theological history from which to learn. They had nothing except Jesus. They believed Jesus. Supposing, for example, that I had a blackboard here and I put some ciphers on it. Zero, zero, zero. How much is that equal? Nothing? Well, I'll put three more. Zero, zero, zero. Nothing. Zero, zero, zero. Nothing. But let me put an integer in front of the zero. Immediately one zero is ten, two zeros are a hundred, three zeros are a thousand, six zeros are a million, nine zeros are a billion. How quickly nothing adds up to something when there's an integer. Now the faith is a zero, but the integer is Christ. The work of God is not just to believe, but the work of God is to believe in Jesus whom God has sent. Or to put it another way, belief is to choose God's word against anything that contradicts it. This is very practical. Before the day is over, something will happen in your life that will contradict the Word of God. Something that you don't think should happen to somebody like you or to someone you love. Some circumstance. Now then, then is when faith ought to be operative. You know, we don't need faith when things go right. We can trust the circumstances. They carry us along. The only time when we need, really need to gear into faith is when things go wrong. I was reminded this morning by uh, some dear friends, by a dear friend, who uh, picked me up at the hotel and drove me over here. I was reminded of a beautiful young woman that both of us knew. She was 19 when I first went to the Fourth Presbyterian Church. She was a beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde little girl, just absolutely beautiful. And uh, her parents 
were special to me because her mother was the church secretary when I became the pastor. So I grew to know the family very well. But this little girl, Joy, and she was like her name, bright and vivacious, attractive, compelling. Well, Joy accepted an invitation to go to Japan for one year and relieve a secretary who was to come home on furlough. And so she went to Japan to work at the Japan Christian College. One night, the college had its campus on the outside of Tokyo. One night she was in Tokyo and she was staying in a missionary home. She was on the third floor. Everyone else was out for whatever reason except the father and mother who, who ran the home and they were on the ground floor. Joy was writing letters like crazy that night. And uh, finally she finished her letter. She had already prepared herself for bed. She was wearing a large, a long nightgown that was tight to the waist and then flowing from the waist down. And she finished the last letter and she sealed it and got up from her desk. And in walking to the bed, her nightgown, the, the, the flare in her nightgown hit an electric heater that was warming the room. And it was a kind of material that just ignited like that. And suddenly she was engulfed in flames. Well, she panicked and she did everything she could to put the flames out. She ran down the hall to the bathroom and of course the, the flames grew as she did. She tried to put it out with water and finally, when she couldn't get it out, she just sat on the top of the stairs. She'd screamed and screamed, but the people on the bottom floor didn't hear her. So she just sat on the, on the top of the stairs and she gathered her beautiful blonde hair up as much as she could and held it with her hands like this while the nightgown continued to burn. When it got to the waist, it didn't inflame anymore. It just kind of slowly burned, just up the waist. I was in India at the time, and I got the, the word that Joy Arendt had third-degree burns on 70% of her body. Well, I immediately made plans to go to Tokyo. I got there too late. Her father was a, a career mar army man, and they had moved her in an army plane from Tokyo to San Antonio to the burn center. So again, I changed my plans and came to San Antonio instead of going to Texas. Now, when I got to the hospital, they spent 30 minutes briefing me before they let me see her. Finally, I was ready, but there was no briefing adequate to prepare me for that trauma. And you know, I stood beside this beautiful girl's bed and she looked like a piece of charcoal at that time. Of course, much of it had to do with what they, what they put on her to protect her. I learned that later. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't even say Romans 8.28. I was angry. I couldn't see any good in that. Why would a beautiful young woman like this be destroyed? All I could do, finally, was sing. Something that I knew Joy liked. And to the extent that I could see her eyes, her eyes lighted up, and I knew that that had somehow ministered to her. Well, I kept going back and back, and finally Joy was released and came home to Washington. I want, to, I want to tell you now that, as I told Liz this morning coming over here, that 
Joy found a wonderful young man, and he found her, and they've been happily married. She's still as beautiful as ever. Those one arm was one ha her one hand was burned off, and other things. But she's a lovely girl, and is very very happy now. But the point I want to make is, as I stood, unable to restrain the tears, beside that uh, fact I can hardly now thinking about. It. Beside that beautiful girl, I had to choose to believe that God was faithful, and God was love, and God was good. Though there was nothing there at that time that supported that faith. And though I didn't quote Romans 8.28 to Joy at that time because I, was, I, I, I learned later it was of the Spirit that I didn't. But silently, I was able to say, God, I don't understand this. But I have your word that says, you work in everything for good to them who love you and are called according to your purpose. Oh, what a hard choice that was. And you know, many, when they come to that choice, do exactly what our first mother did. They reject God's word, and on the basis of the circumstances, believe the devil's lie. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus, whom he has sent. Let us pray. Father in heaven, from the story of our first mother in her human perfection, help us to be comforted when we find choosing to believe God difficult when circumstances want to make a liar of God. Give us the grace always to believe. For Christ's sake, amen.